Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for June 2012. I'm Jay Suarez, Managing Editor for the Journal. I'm happy to announce that we have a new expert in our Ask the Expert section on our community site. David Spiegel from Yale University will serve as our chemical biology expert for the months of June and July. Please feel free to stop by our community site and ask questions at www.acscbcommunity.com. The current issue of ACS Chemical Biology features 21 research papers, including a wonderful review by Henning Lin on the link between energy metabolism and post-translational modification. Additionally, our latest issue has a manuscript from Anthony Burgess's lab that reports a new way to fight leukemia in children. And finally, a manuscript by Tom Sackmar describes how to illuminate binding sites of GPCRs. We are now joined by Tom Sackmar from the Rockefeller University, New York, author of a manuscript in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology. Hi, Tom. Hi. How are you, Jitesh? I'm good. So to start off with the interview, I'd like to know what are GPCRs? GPCRs are cell surface receptors that are characteristic for having seven transmembrane helical segments. And these receptors are essentially ubiquitous in eukaryotic cells. They are signal transducers. They transduce information from outside the cell to inside the cell. Generally, in the body, for example, in humans, these receptors are hormone receptors, neurotransmitter receptors, neuromodulator receptors, and they can also be metabolite receptors. And they're also notable as being sensory receptors. For example, one of the receptors that we study as a prototype is a visual pigment, rhodopsin. And these receptors are also noteworthy because they serve as drug targets for about 25% of all therapeutic agents. So GPCRs are extremely important in drug discovery programs in biotech and big pharma. So why is it challenging to identify precise binding sites and the mechanism of action of GPCR ligands? It's a challenging problem because the receptors require to function properly. They require a membrane environment And the best way to study their function, of course, is in cells. When we're trying to develop methods to look at bimolecular reactions, ligand receptor interactions in cells, we have to develop new technologies because the classical approaches, for example, competition binding assays or some formalism that may not really apply to normal physiology, is not accurate enough to get detailed information. Historically, medicinal chemists have worked with pharmacologists to try to optimize ligands that can either turn on receptors, those are the agonist ligands, or to turn off receptors, those are classically antagonists, or now known as inverse agonists. And these compounds are drug candidates because they modulate the normal activity of a particular GPCR target. What we'd like to do is develop new strategies to map the binding sites of the GPCR ligands on their target receptors that we can carry out not necessarily in reconstituted systems but in cell-based systems 
and that's what we've been trying to develop here. Okay, so in your manuscript, then, you describe a new methodology to illuminate the binding site of GPCRs. Could you briefly describe this new approach to our audience? Yes. We call this approach targeted photo cross-linking, and what it really does is to reinvent a methodology that's been used for a couple of decades, which is photo cross-linking, where you would have on one molecule of interest a photoactivatable chemical moiety that could be activated, for example, by UV light. In the traditional cross-linking strategy, you would have a photoactivatable ligand that would bind to its target, and then under conditions that you define in the experimental setup, you would photolyze the reaction to allow the photoactivatable moiety to become a free radical, for example, that would then react with an atom in its proximity. These strategies were used in past times to look at binding sites, for example, active sites of enzymes. These strategies were used successfully, but they're relatively cumbersome. For example, it's sometimes difficult to get the photocross-linking reaction to occur. And then once it does occur, if you can actually identify a cross-link, it's often very difficult to identify the site of a cross-link in a particular protein of interest. So our strategy tried to overcome that problem in GPCRs by putting the photoactivatable moiety not on the ligand, but on the receptor itself. And we do that by using an amber codon suppression technology that we've developed in parallel. With this strategy, we can introduce an unnatural amino acid that has a photoactivatable crosslinker. In the paper that describes the work here, we introduced either para-azidophenylalanine or a para-benzoylphenylalanine into expressed receptors. In this case, we used chemokine receptor 5. We introduced the unnatural amino acid into the expressed receptor in cells in culture. We then add a ligand, in this case a drug that's used to treat HIV, which is a HIV co-receptor blocker called Maraviroc. We add the drug to the receptor that has the unnatural amino acid in it. We then photolyze the cells. This is a cell-based strategy. We photolyze with UV light, and the ligand will cross-link to the receptor. But the cross-link only occurs if the amino acid residue that we've targeted is in close proximity, on the order of three angstroms or less, from a reactive atom in the ligand, the Maraviroc. So with this strategy, what we did, since it's a genetic strategy and cell-based, we could make a large number of mutations in the receptor and put either the benzoyl or the azidophy into the receptor at positions that we hypothesized were near to the binding site. We could then show that the Maraviroc could bind, and upon photo cross-linking, upon photolysis, we got a subset of the amino acid residues that we introduced to cross-link to the Maraviroc, and thereby we get a picture, sort of a negative imprint, of where the Maraviroc lies within the binding pocket of the receptor. And this is very useful 
especially in cases where the drug is not binding in a site that's normally occupied by the normal ligand for the receptor. By that I mean if you have a ligand, say an agonist ligand that binds to the receptor, you can use some drugs to compete off the ligand directly. So you have an idea of where the drug binds by knowing where the original ligand bound. Those are called orthosteric ligands. In this case, the maraviroc binds to a site that's different from what the normal ligand binds to. That's called an allosteric ligand or an allosteric binder. So this methodology was particularly useful to get chemical information about the binding site of the maraviroc. That sounds like a very interesting approach, and I'm just curious to wrap up. How broadly applicable is this methodology? Well, in principle, the methodology could be used for any expressed receptor because the strategy we use to introduce the unnatural amino acid, the amber codon suppression method, can be used for, in principle, any receptor that can be expressed in HEK cells. And in fact, we've used the method now to introduce unnatural amino acids into six or eight different GPCRs. On the ligand side, all you need to make the method generalizable is a way to detect the presence of the crosslink. In our case, we had a tritiated small molecule maraviroc. We used a tritiated version of maraviroc. So in principle, any time you had a ligand that was labeled in some way so you could detect a positive crosslink, you should be able to do the targeted photo crosslinking approach. It should be generalizable. All right, that sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, my pleasure. Our next author for today is Herman Sintem from the University of Maryland, author of a manuscript in the current issue. Hi, Herman. Hi, Jatesh. So what is quorum sensing, and why is it important to disrupt it? Quorum sensing is a decision-making process whereby certain important decisions are taken when a critical population threshold has been reached. And so a very good example of quorum sensing is actually found in bacteria where they respond to a stimulus that could be a molecule that is produced when the bacteria reaches a certain growth state. And so via quorum sensing, bacteria are able to sense the, the number of other bacteria that are in close proximity and then change their physiological state or respond to that information. So one can look at quorum sensing as a communication system, not just related to bacteria, that any system can use to make important decisions based on the population density. Okay, so there are different bacterial communication molecules known to exist. Why then did you decide to pursue autoinducer 2 analogs? Okay, so autoinducer 2 analog, uh, usually referred to as AI2, is found in over 70 bacteria species. And in the past, there was some disagreement whether it was a bona fide quorum sensing molecule, but seminal work by the Basilis group and several other groups have now shown that autoinducer 2 is a really important quorum sensing molecule that different bacteria uses, as I've already said. Now, the reason why we went for autoinducer 2 was that even though it had been shown to be important in biofilm regulation in, say, chronic wound infection, and also used by certain bacteria such as Yersinia pepsis and other bacteria that causes really serious diseases, 
there were not that many analogs of autoinducer 2 or even other small molecules that could actually inhibit the signaling of autoinducer 2. So we thought that there was a room for a chemical biologist or an organic chemist to actually get in this field to make certain chemical probes to A, try to inhibit the signaling, but also to design probes that would also be used to identify some of the protein receptors that autoinducer 2 presumably binds to and affect certain processes in bacteria. Okay, that sounds pretty reasonable. So then what would you say were the most significant observations in your recent study published in ACS Chemical Biology? So I would say that there were three significant observations. And the first one was our discovery that by making specific changes to the actual signaling molecule, one can arrive at analogs that could actually inhibit autoinducer 2. The second important discovery was that one could also use these small molecules to actually modulate bacterial behavior in a polymicrobial systems because in real life bacteria actually do not exist in isolation and so being able to find molecules that can actually work on bacteria in these polymicrobial systems is a challenge and so we think that is really significant and then finally we also did some mechanistic studies where we actually show that some of our small molecules are phosphorylated and so we also provided molecular details of how the inhibition actually occurs. Okay, that sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Okay, thanks. Our final author for today is Rebecca Butcher from the University of Florida. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. So your manuscript deals with the parasitic life cycle of a nematode that's pathogenic to insects. Could you summarize a typical life cycle of this nematode starting as an infective juvenile in soil? Sure. So H. bacteriophora is a nematode or roundworm, and in the soil it survives as an infective juvenile. So this infective juvenile is a larval stage that's specialized for survival out in the harsh soil environment. And it's also specialized for the infection process, so it has actually a tooth-like structure for slicing into the insect host so that it can infect the host. The nematode is actually not lethal on its own to the insects, but um, it uses a bacterial partner called Photorhabdus luminescence or P. luminescence that it stores in its gut and then uses to kill the insect host. So there's actually three players in the system, the nematode parasite H. bacteriophora, its bacterial partner P. luminescence, and the insect host. And so what's really interesting about this system is that chemical signals are really important for mediating their interactions between the three players. So you could imagine an infective juvenile in the soil, it seeks out an insect host, and then when it finds and breaks into that host, it responds to chemical cues inside the insect host, and this causes it to regurgitate the bacterial partner from its gut, and then the bacterial pathogens multiply inside the insect, and they produce antibiotics that prevent other microorganisms from proliferating on the insect. And they also produce signals that allow the infected juvenile to recover and develop into a reproductive adult. And so the nematode multiplies on the insect carcass until at a certain point the population density becomes high enough and food runs out, and then infective juveniles again form and they eventually break out of the insect, and then they can go and seek out a new insect host. Okay, so you then identified a new signal molecule that's important to its life cycle. 
What's the precise role of this signal molecule? Yeah, so we identified a pheromone that is secreted by the nematode. The nematode uses to control infective juvenile development. So initially, after the infective juveniles infect the insect host and recover, the adults lay eggs. But at some point, the adults stop laying the eggs and instead retain them. And so these retained eggs develop into the infective juveniles, and they end up killing their mother. And this process is the primary process by which these infective juveniles form. And so these infective juveniles can form at both low and high nematode densities, but when they form at low nematode densities, they usually recover. But at high nematode densities, they stay as infective juveniles. And so the pheromone that we identified is secreted by multiplying nematodes, and so it likely accumulates in the insect late in the infection process, and so it prevents infective juvenile recovery. So it allows these infective juveniles to accumulate. And, and this is really important for the life cycle of the nematode because this infective juvenile pheromone allows the nematode to coordinate infective juvenile formation and mass so that the infective juveniles can then break out of the insect and seek a new insect host. Okay, so then what is the significance of identifying the role of this new signal molecule, which I believe are ascaricides, right? Right. So the pheromone is a structurally novel ascaricide or a derivative of this didioxysugar ascarolose. And so free-living nematode C. elegans also uses ascaricides to control its development. And specifically, C. elegans uses this pheromone to induce dower larval development, which is a larval stage that's similar to the infective juvenile. But our study is actually the first to show that another nematode species, a parasitic one, uses these ascaricides to control its development. So there's thousands of nematode species, and about a third of them are parasitic. And some of them are good parasites, like H. bacteriophora, that kill insects, but Others are bad nematodes that infect plants and animals and humans. And we know virtually nothing about the chemical signaling in these species. And so you might imagine that if we could learn more about this chemical signaling, we might be able to develop chemical tools to interfere with the life cycles of these parasitic nematodes. So H. bacteriophora is just a very useful model for these parasitic nematode species because it's very similar to some of these parasitic nematode species, but it's much easier to cultivate because unlike, say, an animal parasitic nematode, it doesn't need to be cultivated in, say, an animal host. So it's just really exciting that we found this class of ascaricides that controls the development of a parasitic nematode species because it means that we're making headway into learning more about chemical signaling in parasitic nematodes. Sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks a lot. To learn more about our authors of the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month, we feature 11 young scientists, Simon Becker, Andrew Burgard, Amy Grunbeck, Min Guo, Eric Horowitz, Heiko Coleman, Yemi Noguez, Yu Wang, Isaac Yonemoto, Hideaki Yoshimura, and Yi Fan Zhang. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to describe ChemBio glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is ascaricides, which consists of a family of small molecules containing glycolipids and the sugar ascarolose.
These compounds are isolated from nematode worms. For more information on ascaricides, please refer to the manuscript by Rebecca Butcher. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.